Well, good morning to all of you over at our Ashley Park campus. And to those of you joining us online, we are so thankful you chose to be with us here today. My name is Nathan Martin, and I'm on staff here at Community Christian. And as you've already seen, we are going to be continuing today in this series that's all about how to kill our relationships, because there's a lot of things in our lives that do. And this series is so important because that's really at the core of what we want as human beings. We want healthy relationships. We want life-giving relationships that make us better as people. But almost all of us know what it's like to end up in some relationships that aren't really life-giving. Well, they really suck the life out of us. Got any of those in your life? Life suckers? Don't point at them if they're sitting next to you, but you get my point. You see, God did not design us to live in these kind of toxic and unhealthy and really unsatisfying relationships. In fact, we believe the God who made us and who loves us has so much better in mind for us than these kind of relationships. And so throughout this series, we're going to be looking at this study done by an organization called Prepare and Enrich, and they really created this assessment tool that they modeled after about 21,000 couples they did this with, and then now they've done this assessment with over 4 million couples, and through it, they've identified what are really the, the kind of things that all unhappy, unhealthy relationships have in common. And here's the truth. E even though this study is done with premarital couples and married couples, we really believe that all they are are these kind of underlying principles that apply to all relationships, and we actually think they line up with what the Bible teaches about how we should love everyone always. And so we really believe that God designed us to have better friendships than the ones we have and to have a better marriage and have better relationships with our coworkers and our neighbors. And yes, we even believe God can make your relationships with your in-laws better. That's how good God is. And I think we all know how important this whole thing of relationships is because this whole series really, its idea is to help us identify these things that live within all of us that, well, we're mostly unaware of. They're these really unwritten rules that most of us operate under that will kill our relationships. I mean, these are things that none of us really want to say out loud. No one's writing them down. Like, no one's got one of those cutesy little board signs that we have hanging up in our homes. You know, I'm talking about the ones that are like, in this house we do. You, you know the ones? No one's got these rules written down. No one's got, in this house, we do guilt trips. In this house, we do the silent treatment. In this house, we do backhanded compliments. Now, that might be a little more accurate to the actual family rules in your house, but that's not really what we want to admit to. And so really what we want to do in this series is expose these kind of unwritten rules that will kill our relationships. And so today we're looking at what is the second most common relational killer, and this is it. It's inflexibility. It's, well, let me tell you how this unwritten rule sounds in your life. Uh, see if you can finish these statements here, and I'm asking for actual participation for you guys out there at Ashley Park, so kind of wake up from your recliners and uh, play along with me here. So see if you can finish this. It's my way or... Now, I'm going to assume that I got about 17% participation there, so we're going to try this again with everybody. It's my way or the highway. 
That's how inflexibility sounds in relationships, right? I get what I want, do things my way, you know, kind of straighten up to what I see fit, fit into my expectation, or I'm done, or we're done. This relationship will not work. It's inflexibility. Here's another one. See if you can finish this one for me. It's a little more popular, I think. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Some of you, some of you ladies wanted to applaud to that when you're like, mm-hmm, I got myself a t-shirt and it's on my coffee mug. I got it on my bumper sticker. You're proud of that one. Mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. It's just inflexibility. Now, the number one killer for relationships is what we talked about last week. It's bad communication. It's communicating in code or just choosing really not to listen and see things from another person's point of view. But the number two killer in relationships is this. It's inflexibility. You know, if you want to kill your marriage, you want to kill your relationships with your kids or your family or with a friend, here's all you have to do. Get your way always. You want to kill a relationship? Make sure you get your way always. Win the argument every time. Control everyone else. Shape them in your image. Never apologize. Never give in. Hold on to your dreams, your standards, your expectations, and never give in because if you gave in, well then you'd lose. And we don't really want to say it this way, but we almost all have kind of this underlying belief that we think what it takes for a relationship to be good and healthy is that we get what we want. That that's what it takes for me to be happy. I've got to find the right kind of people who, who live the way I want them to and look the way I want them to and act the way I want them to, and then I can be happy. Well, you we don't really want to say it, but that's why we become so inflexible with our expectations of the other person and the relationship and well, how much should we really see each other as friends and what each person should do in the relationship? We don't really want to back down or give in at all because, well, that, that would just be us losing. There's a teacher and an author named Robert Roberts, which, come on, what is that name? Like last name Roberts? Just name him Robert. It'll be easier. But he uh, wrote a book, and he, he wrote about a group of fourth graders uh, who were playing a good old-fashioned game of balloon stomp. Now, a balloon stomp is that game where you tie a balloon to the leg of each child, and you tell them to go out, and you've got to pop all the other balloons, and the last person to be there with their balloon unpopped is the winner, right? Pretty basic game on this, okay? Well, Robert says that there was a group of fourth graders. They go out to play it, and he says it happens almost exactly the way you think it would. And here's how he describes the first game. He says, The balloons were relentlessly targeted and destroyed. The entire battle was over in a matter of seconds. Now, some feelings were hurt as the final child with their unpopped balloons strutted across the room in victory. See, in order to be good at this game, you have to be pushy, rude, and aggressive. You have to do whatever it takes to get your way. But then Robert said, there's a second group of children who go out and play this game. But this group of children, they all had intellectual disabilities. And he said, things go differently with this group. This is how Robert describes it. The one idea that these children understood was that the balloons were to be popped. So it was the balloons, not the other players, that were viewed as enemies. Instead of fighting each other, they began helping each other pop 
their balloons. One little girl knelt down and held her balloon carefully in place like a holder for a field goal kicker. And then one by one, each child held their balloon for another child to pop. And all the children would squeal in joy with each other balloon getting popped. In the end, everybody won. Don't you love that kind of story? See, in relationships, though, we all have these expectations of how things should go and what people should do, and we become fixated on changing these things about the other person or just straight changing the other person, and so we just begin stomping and stomping and stomping to get what we want. And all that really happens is, well, we stomp on the people we love the most. They become our enemies, and we may win the argument, We may win at making our spouse behave the way we want or making our friend behave the way we want or by forcing our children to kind of fit into this mold that we really think they should fit into. We may win in the moment, but we lose the relationship. You see, on this prepare and enrich assessment we're looking at over this series, the researchers found that 87% of the unhappy couples, the unsatisfied couples, said their partner was either too stubborn or too inflexible. They never changed. They always had to get their way. But out of the things that all happy couples, all satisfied couples shared in common, the second most important thing they identified to their relationship was couple flexibility. It was the ability of each person in the relationship to just adjust to one another, to adapt their expectations. And this isn't just true for marriage, it's for all relationships. And so how do we learn to be people who are flexible in our relationships and we don't have to hold tight to all our expectations and so everybody can win in our relationships? Well, I think the first step is to stop fixating on things that you can't control. Stop fixating on the things that you can't control. Dr. Alan Parducci, who's a researcher at UCLA, wrote about relationships like this. He said, money, success, health, beauty, power, that has little to do with a couple's happiness. It's not all this external stuff that we get fixated on controlling. Instead, a major factor determining happiness has to do with each partner's ability to adjust to things beyond his or her control. So it's not how your wife behaves. It's not how your friend behaves or doesn't behave that is making you unhappy. It's not what your boss does. It's not what your kid does. It's not anyone else's behavior that is making you unhappy. It's your ability to adjust to things outside of your control, to adjust your expectations, to adjust your dreams for the relationship. And in case you're not really aware of what is within your control and beyond your control, I've provided a graphic for us that makes it very simple. You may have seen this before. Here it is. Your behavior, your thoughts, Your emotions, the effort you put into the relationship, that is on you. That is your control. It's your responsibility. But everyone else's behavior, everyone else's thoughts, their emotions, the effort they put into the relationship, there's nothing you can do to control that. And you might be thinking, yes, but how do I get them in my control? That is a different message for a different time. My wife and I have been together since we were 15, and when we first got together, even before we got married, it became clear to me pretty early on, we don't view time in the same way. 
I don't know if you've experienced this in your relationship before, but uh, I am the kind of person that I have like an anxiety attack if I'm going to be two minutes early for something because I need to be 10 minutes early for whatever it is. And well, that's not how my wife operates. And I really began to view that not only was I right in the sense that like I was correct, I viewed time correctly, I was right morally. I was morally right about this issue. I cared about people. I cared about others. That's why it, it, it frustrated me so much. That's why it embarrassed me if we were late or even if she was late on her own. I mean, I became fixated on this. I couldn't think about much else. And so I would nag her about it. I'd be passive aggressive about it, make these kind of jokes to kind of cut her from underneath just to make these, make her feel like, hey, you got to change this. You got you to fix this. And anytime we went out, we'd, we'd argue, we'd fight about this, you know, especially if we were going to the movies or we were going to meet up with somebody and... Then we'd show up, and we'd be frustrated and annoyed, and no one won. Certainly no one else in the restaurant. No one else was having a good time with this. And eventually, someone helped me realize, Nathan, this is not in your control. There's nothing you can do about this. You can't control her behavior. You can't control how she views time. I mean, yes, if you want to be on time to something, you can control your behavior, but you can't control this, and you're not helping anything. And so eventually, I just stopped talking about it, stopped making it an issue, I stopped fixating on it, and magically, we argued less. We, there was less anger, there was less tension in our relationship, and it was like there was this peace in our home that hadn't been there before. I just stopped fixating on it. And as long as you fixate on what your friend isn't doing for you, or as long as you fixate on the status of your sex life in your marriage, or as long as you fixate on the expectations that everyone else is letting you down on and they're disappointing you on this, you will continue to be unhappy and you will probably make them unhappy as well. But when you admit, that's out of my control. There's nothing I can do about this. When you choose to adjust your expectations and stop fixating on these things that are outside of your control, the happier you will be, the more satisfied you will be in your relationship. That really leads, though, to the second thing you have to do in order to be flexible, which is to admit, just because I want it does not mean I deserve to have it. Now, this one is difficult for all of us because we really live in a world right now that everything within us and outside of us is telling us, if you have a desire, it's good for you, and you should go after it no matter what it is. And if someone's trying to stop you from having it, they're oppressing you. And if you just choose, well, I'm not going to indulge in that desire, then you're repressing yourself. And so we really begin to feel like, you know, if I've got the money, I should spend it. I deserve to spend it. And you know what? If I want to do it, then I should go for it. And if I've worked for it, then I earn it. And, and that means I deserve it. And, and in the end, we end up using this in our relationships, and we begin feeling the same way. You know, I deserve a friend who will drop everything when I'm in need, or I deserve a friend who will answer my calls the moment the phone rings. I, I deserve a boss who will not only listen to my opinions, but take them into consideration. You know, it's the holidays, and I deserve a family. I deserve children who will come and be with me. I deserve it. I deserve a spouse who lives up to every expectation and fantasy I have ever had. I deserve it. And because I deserve it, when you aren't giving me what I want, I don't just feel disappointed. I feel like you cheated me. I feel like you've robbed me 
of something. You've stolen from me the dream, the relationship that I've always wanted. And so I feel like I've got every right to fight for what I want. I feel completely justified in nagging you or manipulating you or guilt tripping and pouting and yelling when I don't get what I want because if I want it, I deserve it. It's my right as the husband. It's my my right as the wife. It's my right. I'm mom. I'm dad. I'm grandma. I'm grandpa. I'm the friend that stuck by you and no one else would. I'm your boss. I deserve it. And if I deserve it, you don't give it to me, you're stealing from me. And the more I hold on to my rights, the more inflexible I become and the more miserable everyone becomes. So let's be honest, you've done this before. It has not worked out for you. You have held on to your rights or your expectations in a situation so tightly that you have choked out the relationship. I mean, you have held on to your right to get what you want and to control how your spouse behaves or to control their feelings or to control their thoughts. And you may have even gotten what you wanted in the moment, but you lost the relationship. You lost the person. And here's the kicker. You may have even been right. You may have been right about what they should have done. You may have been right about that relationship. You may have been right about everything. But you held on to your right to be right, and you righted yourself right out of a relationship with them. You held on to your right so tightly, and you missed the relationship. And you did it in your first marriage, and it's happening in your second marriage. And if you are not careful, it will be the reason you're in a third marriage. Because you've got to, at some point, let go of your rights. If you can't move past this, you'll never get what you really want, which is a healthy and happy relationship. And parents, this is why you have to learn how to adjust the way you parent as your kids get older. I mean, if you are still treating your 16-year-old with the same amount of control you had when they were six, You're in dangerous territory. And look, I work with teenagers at the church, and I love teenagers, and I think they tolerate me mostly, but I am totally okay with them hearing me say, you are probably right. In fact, I'll just say it, you are right. You are right about what they should do. You are right about how they should handle their school and their future. You are right about this loser that they're dating or that they're going after. You're right. But if you are not careful... You will write yourself right out of a relationship with them, which is ultimately what you want. And see, this holding on to rights, this is how relationships have operated since the beginning of time. But then Jesus came on the scene, and he offered this new way of dealing with relationships. On the night before he died, Jesus is having a meal with his final followers, and he tells them a new command that he's giving to them. This is it. He says, Love one another just as I have loved you. And see, that may not sound that new, but I really think if you notice the kind of the details on this, it is. This isn't Jesus saying, hey, treat one another the way you want to be treated, which is something he said, but he's like, now I'm taking it up a notch. This is not about how you want to be treated. This is about how I've treated you. That's a whole nother level. This is not about what you want. This is about what you've seen me do. And see, If you just focused on that for the rest of your life, that's all you'd need. Love everyone always, just like Jesus did. 
But even the earliest followers of Jesus, these earliest church leaders, they understood we don't really want to look at the fine print and figure out every single area of life, how loving like Jesus looks. And so they would write these letters to these early churches and they'd kind of just tease out what does this look like in every single relationship in every single area. And one of these early church leaders is a guy named Paul, and he's writing to a church in Philippi about what we're talking about today. This is what he says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, if you want to live out this new command, you want to love like Jesus, you want to live like Jesus, you got to think like Jesus. That's what we talked about in our last series, better thoughts, having the thoughts of Jesus. And then Paul explains, this is what the mindset of Jesus looks like, and it's a whole new way of thinking. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, that may not make a lot of sense to you, but it's a revolutionary idea in the ancient world. You see, in in Roman society, status was everything, and with status came certain rights and privileges. And so the idea that someone of high status, like a husband or a head of the household, or even like a senator, a politician, or the emperor himself, I mean, let alone God, someone with all the rights and privileges just giving them up, not using them for their own advantage, not using them to force what they want, it it made no sense. And Paul is saying, look, I get you think you have rights because you're the husband, or you think you got rights because you're mom or dad, or you think you got rights because you're the boss. Well, no one had more rights than Jesus. He was God. But when Jesus came on earth, he didn't take advantage of his power and his privilege and his rights. He didn't use his power to control other people or manipulate them to get what he wants. He didn't force his ideas, his will on anyone. Instead, Paul says, Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Now, if there's like a status ladder in Roman society, the emperor is up at the top, right? He's at the top. At the very bottom, they're servants or slaves. These people have no rights, no privileges. They don't even have control over their own life or their own death. And Paul is saying, hey, Jesus was God. He was above the emperor. He's not even on the ladder. And he was willing to, as one translation said, empty himself of these privileges and these rights. And he dropped to the lowest part of the ladder and he took on the role of a slave. And we know this because he was obedient like a slave to the point that he died a slave's death on the cross. You see, a Roman citizen, they couldn't be crucified. They they had too much privilege. They had too much rights. It was too humiliating and degrading of a death to kill a Roman citizen that way. And so the only people he killed were like traitors to the Roman Empire or slaves because they had no rights at that point. And Jesus is willing to die a slave's death. No control, no rights. Why? Because he loved us, because he wanted to win us over. Jesus could have come here and used his rights, his privileges as the Son of God to demand us to worship him and to serve him, but that's not what he did. He emptied himself. He, he did not force himself on us. He didn't argue us or nag us to death. He emptied himself of his rights, and he died so we could live. And that's the third thing you got to do if you want to be flexible. If you want a win-win relationship, You have to submit your right to get what you want to the other person. Now, we don't really 
use the word submit a lot. We don't really like that word, especially in church, right? Because it carries a lot of baggage. If you've been in church before, you might have heard it in terms of like the role of women in the church, gender roles, all this kind of stuff. And we don't really like it ultimately because submission means I lose, I give up. But look at what Paul says to a different church in, in this different letter. He writes, I want you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, just in case you're wondering, this is right before Paul writes the, the verse. It's a little controversial where he says, wives, submit to your husbands. But notice the reason here. He says, everyone submits to everyone. Everyone should submit. In fact, later on, he says, husbands, I want you to lay down your life for your wife. You want to see how far you go in submission? You be willing to die for them. But that's not really the part I want you to focus on. Here's, here's the part I want you to notice. It's why do we submit? Do we submit because the other person deserves it? Do we submit because maybe they're right and you're wrong, so you just need to give up? No. We submit out of reverence and awe of all Jesus has done for us. We choose to have the same mindset as Jesus who submitted himself to us, who served us, who laid his life down for us. We follow his example and we submit. And that word submit really just means you give up. You stop fighting. You, you stop the argument. You just you give up. I give up my right for them to know how right I am. I give up my right to have all my expectations and dreams met. I give up my right to control how my child's future turns up. I, I, I give up my rights, and I submit. Because if I don't, I may win the argument, but I will not ultimately win. I may control their behavior, but I will not win. And I know it feels, it feels scary. I mean, I know you had all these dreams and you started your marriage and you're standing at the altar and you had all these ideas of how your marriage would turn out and it's like those dreams are just slipping through your fingers. And, and I, know, I know what it's like to hold a child in the hospital and you have all these ideas about how they're going to turn out and these expectations of it. And now they're a teenager and you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I, I know what it's like to feel like this is not exactly the way I thought my family was going to turn out. I know that that may be what you're feeling right now. And I know it's scary because you're thinking, man, if I feel like if I give up, and I'm just admitting defeat. But that's not what this is. This is you choosing to love the other person more than you love getting what you want. Because you can't love the other person and control them. You can't love a person and control them. See, God models this all the time for us. He doesn't control us. He doesn't force himself on us. He, he serves us. He submits to us, and he doesn't control us or force his will on us. He offers us relationship. Yeah, but what if I know what's best? Okay, don't you think Jesus knows what's best for you, and he doesn't force it on you? So, Nathan, you're saying I'm never going to get what I want. Well, first, I think that's a little bit of an overreaction because you often get what you want, and you don't even have to fight for it. You don't have to manipulate to get it. People love you. They serve you. They give you what you want. So the issue isn't that you'll never get what you want. It's that you won't always get what you want. That's a different thing. But secondly, yes, you may not get what you want. And 
You may have to go through this process of almost like grieving where you say, my marriage is not going to turn out exactly how I thought it would be. I'm never going to have the relationship with my kids or my grandkids that I thought I would have. My family's not going to turn out exactly like I wanted it to. I may not get what I want. See, until you kill the dream or the expectation, you cannot love the person who's standing in front of you. And no matter how good the dream or the fantasy is, it's not as good as the person standing in front of you because the person standing in front of you exists. This is just a fantasy. Real is always better than the fantasy. And look, I know this feels like losing because submission always feels that way. But here's what Paul reminds us. It felt like losing when Jesus submitted to death on the cross. Everyone thought he had lost. And then Paul ends that whole section in Philippians by reminding us, God raised him to new life. God crowned him the king of all kings, and every knee's going to bow one day, and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus is Lord. I get it. Submission may feel like the end of your dream, but submission is not the end. This one battle is not all that matters. Submission is the path to life because when we stop trying to squeeze all of our satisfaction and all of our happiness out of this other person then we can do what we are made to do love them see loving god loving people just like jesus did that's the truest satisfaction our hearts can find yes submission feels like losing in the moment but i promise you it's the power of the upside down kingdom of god that when you are losing you're really winning Because now, instead of fighting to hold on to the life you always thought you wanted to live, you now are living the life you were made to live. You are loving other people the way God has loved you. So here's my challenge for you and for myself this week. First, identify an area in your life where, in a relationship, you're just being inflexible. And if you don't know what that is, here's a great clue on it. What causes the most conflict or the most tension in your relationships? That's probably a great place to start. So you identify that, and then secondly, you ask, is this something that's in my control? And if it's their behavior, if it's their thoughts, if it's their effort in the relationship, I can't control that. And so if it's not something I can control, then the next step is I submit. I give up the fight on that. I I submit my right to get what I want. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that this is a way for you to just let people walk all over you. That's what you're feeling right now. This doesn't mean that you don't even speak the truth about bad behavior or wrong behavior or sinful behavior. It certainly doesn't mean that you allow sinful or damaging or hurtful or abusive behavior to continue. That's not something you just give in on. That's a whole other message, but What I'm saying is this is not an excuse to not have healthy boundaries in your life. This is not an excuse for you to not have that difficult conversation you know you should have. This doesn't mean that you don't ever speak the truth about bad behavior. This means that you give up the right to control another person. This means you give up your right to squeeze the happiness and the satisfaction in your life out of them. You give it up. And then finally, you have to trust that God is going to satisfy your desires. These things you submit on, you feel like you're losing. You remember that God is the one who satisfies all the deepest desires of your heart. He's the only one who can do what you really want. See, if you do this, you'll stop 
killing your relationships because you'll give up your right to get your way always. And instead, you'll love like Jesus has loved you, and that's what you were made to do. So would you stand with me right now? And I want to pray that God would help us to do that this week. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the example you have set for us, for the way that you submitted yourself to death on the cross on our behalf. You gave up your rights and privileges for us. And God, even though we're scared of this, and we really want to hold on to our rights, and we feel like it's the only way to get what we want, would you give us a peace this week to know that this submission is the right way? And God, would you give us your power to submit to others out of reverence for what you have done for us. We thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice for us. It's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you guys for being here. We'll see you next Sunday for the next week of How to Kill Your Relationship in 30 Days.